0: Good morning sleep-in service. Good to see you guys. Glad that you're here. Uh, If I haven't met you before, my name is Grant. I'm the lead teaching pastor here at Christ the King. We're just glad that you've chosen to take an hour of your weekend, come and hang out with us. A couple of quick announcements before we get started today. First of all, in the Commons is what we would call a glow station. It doesn't need to look exactly like that, but that is a a tool that we use here on the weekend or on the night of October the 31st uh, when the world goes a little dark and we try to bring a little bit of light into it. And so we host something called Glow Stations. You can sign up as a host of a glow station out in the Commons. Uh, basically what we do is we create a safe place for kids to come, interact with somebody who loves Jesus, we give away free candy, we give them glow bracelets so that they actually stand out so we can keep them safe, Um, and it's an amazing opportunity. Last year we had thousands of people go through glow stations. I want to encourage you because I always get asked the question, why do I have to donate candy so someone else can give it away? Well, that, there's a good answer for that. We have some glow stations last year that had hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of kids show up, and we're a family, so we share stuff around to make sure that we can cover all the bases. So if you'd like to sign up to host a glow station, if you'd like to donate some candy, whatever it needs to do, you can go and talk to the folks out there in the comments, and they would love to talk with you. As well, we've been doing this little push into something called Ownership, Owning the Mission, Vision, and Values of Christ the King. There'll be another ownership class after this service. Pastor Todd will meet you in the meeting place. Starts about 12.15 right after church, and we'll do our best to wrap it up about 1.15ish because apparently some of you have somewhere to be about one thirty. I just heard a rumor. Um, And so if you'd like to go through that process, we had a great response last weekend, and we hope that you'll continue to press in as we continue to move ahead with God's little section of of His little kingdom here at Christ the King. And as well, if you're a worship person and you love to pray, we're going to host a worship night here this Friday night here at the church, and it's basically churches from across the county coming together to pray that God would break the stranglehold of human trafficking and slavery right here in Whatcom County. If you don't know that's an issue here in Whatcom County, uh, then you should probably come and actually be educated as to the fact that, that we sit on something known as the Golden Corridor between Vancouver, British Columbia, and down south in California, and a lot of things travel up and down the I-5 corridor that we would not, that we would not want anything to do with as people of God. So we're going to have a worship night, a time together. Uh, I just looked at the outline. Pastor Bob Marvel, my great friend from Cornwall Church, is going to be here doing a small devotional as part of that. It's a great evening. Make sure you come and join us Friday night 7 o'clock right here. And as well, one more thing before we get started. Right after the service, I'm going to sprint out this side door, quick change of clothes, get in my car, drive as fast as I can with my wife, Laurel, down to Seattle because we're going to try and catch a flight that's going to take us to Rome. Uh, for about the next 10 days, we're going to be on uh, uh, on a missions trip over there. We're going to go face-to-face up into the up into the earthquake zone. There are a couple of churches up there that used to be three stories tall and now are on the ground because of the devastation of the earthquake. We're also going to be doing some work over there with some Syrian refugees, as well as working together with some church planters and some leaders over there. And so uh, we're going to be heading on over there. If you'd like to follow the trip, um, after the first couple days, we get our feet on the ground. You can follow along on my Facebook page, which is uh, CTK Grant Fishbook. If you just search that, then I can, I'll, I'll be posting video and different things like that as we're over there working together. Excited to have the opportunity, and our main purpose is to go over there and find out what God wants us to do as a church to help the folks over there in some of the, the most difficult life circumstances that you could imagine. And so if you'd be praying for us while we're gone, that would be great. All right, if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Song of Solomon, chapter one and the first part of chapter two today. So if you want to open your Bible or turn on your app, that would be absolutely fantastic. There is controversy about the Song of Solomon. There's controversy about the story that goes along behind it. And before we even dive into it, I want to remind you again today, the Bible says that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. So that means this is good for all of us, even though we may say, "Well, it doesn't really apply to my marital status, and I'm not sure how this connects with me, Scripture says this is good because it's God's Word, amen? So that's the direction we're going to be going. Here's the controversy about the story behind Song of Solomon. Some commentators read this book and they believe it's a love triangle. And their story goes like this. They believe that Solomon, out for a ride one day, finds this peasant girl working in a vineyard and he's so smitten by her that he goes to her two older brothers and compels them to sell her into a marriage contract, which was custom at that particular time. And then he takes her back to his palace and puts her in charge of his harem. He falls in love with her and he does everything he can to try and win her heart, but there's a problem. This woman's in love with somebody else. She's in love with a shepherd boy from back in her hometown called Shulam. And when Solomon finally figures out that her heart can't be won because she's in love with somebody else, he releases her to go back and find her true love. And that's a credible story, it's a credible perspective. The problem with it is that if you look at some of the intimate dialogue between Solomon and this woman, it goes back and forth. And so there are some issues with regards to the text and this love song that we find in the Bible. Most commentators believe that the identity of the characters in the book actually reveal the story. So the book itself answers the question, who's the lover? Because if you read the text, there'll be little subtitles. It'll say lover and the beloved, and sometimes it's the friend's. But the book answers the question, who's the lover? And it's very clear that it's King Solomon. And then history comes along and answers the question, who's the beloved? So last week we learned about this lady. Her name is the Shulamite woman inside of the book. But history tells us that she actually had her name. Her name was Namah. And Namah was the first love of Solomon. He started strong and then he got all twisted up in the wrong direction. So some commentators think it's a triangle, Solomon, Namah, and the shepherd boy. Other commentators have a different spin, and their story would go more like this. Once upon a time, actually somewhere between 971 and 931 BC, because these are real people in real history, in the hill country of Ephraim, the king of Israel had leased a vineyard to a family. The parents of the family had died, leaving two brothers to oversee two sisters. The two brothers were not kind and put at least one of the sisters to work in their family vineyard, and she worked there from sunup to sundown every single day. One day, this young woman met a shepherd, and over time, she and the shepherd developed a friendship that grew into a pure, purposeful love. And then one day, the shepherd came to her and said, I'm going to have to go away, but I promise I'll come back someday, and I'll marry you. And he was gone a long time, and the brothers continued in their cruelty towards their sister. And then one day, this young peasant girl received a summons to go to the royal palace in Jerusalem. She had no idea why she'd been summoned there, but when the king asks you to do something, that's what you do. So she went to Jerusalem, and she passed by these magnificent horse stables, row upon row of chariots, these amazing opulent buildings, until she finally entered into the royal throne room and was their custom. She bowed down even before the king entered king entered on a white horse because that was his custom, dismounted and then walked in front of her and with her eyes down when he spoke, she was surprised to hear a familiar voice and she looked up and found out that her shepherd was actually the king himself and we hear that and we go, ah, the only thing that's missing is a glass slipper, right? And they lived happily ever after, which didn't happen because in every love story, this thing called life happens. And the moral of the story, of course, is that every girl simply needs a prince charming to find true happiness, and we know that's not true. And they wrote a love song that makes us uncomfortable because it's intimate and explicit, and that, my friends, is very much true. Two stories. One feels a little like Cinderella. One feels like a love triangle. And we're not exactly sure which one we're supposed to base. In fact, I threw a challenge out to our video department. I said, guys, take this story and turn it into a two-minute movie. And they did. And some of you saw it last week for the first time. And some of you were like, ooh, that seems really dark. And other words, just like, that was so unbelievably beautiful. That's the beautiful thing about art, right? Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So they took the tension. The tension between the pure, innocent love of Solomon and his bride and this darkness that breaks over top of their relationship. And they turn it into a little film. Let's watch it together right now on the screens. interpretation of the story. What's really cool is there was no stock footage done. All of that, including the horse, happened right here in Whatcom County. I think that was a pretty amazing piece of work. There's two stories, two perspectives, and you're welcome to pick each, either one that you want to. They both have some level of credibility. In fact, I want to encourage you. If you'd like to be the person to actually tell us exactly which one is right, you can go and get yourself a PhD in Hebrew culture and language, and then come and report back, and we will accept your word, okay? The story of Song of Solomon begins with a conversation between the girl and her friends. It's kind of raw and hard because it reveals a longing that every one of us has. Every person in this room just wants their story to be known. They want to be released from judgment. They want to be accepted for who they are. Every human being has that in common. And knowing that backstory, listen to her words as she talks to her friends. She says, dark am I yet lovely. Daughters of Jerusalem, dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Don't stare at me because I'm dark, because I'm darkened by the sun. Now remember, it's poetry. When Laurel and I went to Thailand earlier this year, I was amazed that in spite of the unbelievably hot temperatures and, and incredibly high humidity, I was amazed how covered people were, hats and gloves and visors and scarves. And so I asked our, our hosts, why is everybody so like, layered up when it's so unbelievably hot? And she said to me, she goes, oh, it's very cultural here, Grant. Because everybody wants light skin, because then they assume you work in an office. She, goes, she said, dark-skinned people work in the field, so it's actually a, it's a status symbol to have light-colored skin. Now, I have a hard time wrapping my head around that one, because if I had a choice between working inside or outside, I would pick outside every single time. But I don't want you to get stuck there. I want you to hear the plea that she's saying underneath of it. The plea is, don't judge me. You don't know my story. You don't know the difficulty I go through every single day. And everybody in the room at some level would agree that, 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 yeah, I want people to know my story. Listen to her explanation. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me care for the vineyards. My own vineyard I actually had to neglect. So her story is actually one of responsibility. She's working without choice. And that's an unbelievably difficult place to be. All of us have this inner longing to be known, and to have our story be heard. She says this in verse 7, Tell me, you who am I love, talking to her friends, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday. Why should I be like a veiled woman beside the flocks of your friends? I mean, I love her honesty and her request. She's basically saying this, Am I going to be invisible my whole life? Are you going to pretend that I'm not here? Do I matter? Does my story matter? We all ask that question. She wants to know, are you actually going to see me as a real person? Are we going to get to connect? What's the hope that's coming out of her right now? It's simple. Accept me. Learn my story and accept me. So she's talking to her friends about love and acceptance. And we all do that, don't we? Don't you guys remember how it used to go back in elementary school? You know, I remember as a guy how it went. You know, there was this girl that I liked. This is how it went down. I would tell my best friend to tell her best friend to tell her that I actually liked her. And the heartbreaking thing was that very often, she would then tell her best friend to tell my best friend that she didn't like me, she actually liked my best friend, which meant I need to go find a new best friend, and it never worked out very well, right? People do this on social media all the time. We kind of talk indirectly to each other, and it seems like a foreign concept, and some of you are going to freak out, but the goal of our time together today is to actually teach us how to use our words. Some of you are just like, seriously, like audible ones? like ones that I don't have to type? Absolutely. So we're going to eavesdrop on a conversation that happens directly between this woman and her husband. And here's the goal. This is the art of listening, the art of understanding, the art of leading someone from a bad place to a better place. Because here's what Nama says to her husband in the first part of chapter 2. She says, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys, the first time I heard that, I thought to myself, she's a little full of herself. Like, she thinks she's this pretty little rose. She even gave herself a name. I'm a Sharon rose, right? I'm just a beautiful little flower. Now, I judged her incorrectly because here's what's very enlightening the rose of Sharon is a swamp flower. And lilies in Israel, they're everywhere. She's not saying she's amazing. She's saying, you know how I see myself? I see myself as just a a common, regular, little, plain, swamp flower. There's nothing special here. Have You ever felt that way? Not sure anybody would ever want to love me because I'm just an ordinary, plain, regular, little, swamp flower. For the record, I want you to know this. You should never dare to talk down about God's creation, especially when it's you. Don't talk smack about how God made you or how He created you, because you need to know this. When God sees you, regardless of how broken your story may be, because He's the one who created you, He looks at you and he, His breath gets taken away. He thinks you are unbelievably beautiful and you shouldn't talk smack about yourself, nor should you allow anybody else to talk smack because the God Almighty in heaven who loved you and made you exactly the way that you are, he looks at you and every time he sees you, his first thought is, they are beautiful. That son is beautiful to me. That daughter is beautiful to me. I mean, think about it. Why is it that every parent thinks that their kids are the most beautiful kids on the face of the earth? Why is it that grandparents are even worse? I mean, have you ever heard grandparents talk? I mean, they don't even think another person's grandparents belongs in the same category as their grandkids, because their grandkids are so much more gifted and so much more beautiful and have such great potential in their life. I mean, they're just like, "Don't even put your grandkid in the same room as mine." Do you know where that comes from? God. Because God our Heavenly Father, looks at every single person in this room, and his first thought is, "You're beautiful. Him And the guys are like, I'm not comfortable with that. Get over it. God adores you. You are worthy to be loved by God according to Him. Now, let's get practical. What we're going to learn in the next couple of minutes applies to everybody in the room if you have a mouth. Okay? If you don't have a mouth, you don't need to listen. But if you've got a mouth, this applies to every person in the room regardless of your marital status, okay? This may seem so basic to so many of us, and so I'll make you a deal. When you can do this perfectly, 100% of the time, then you never have to listen to me talk again. Because it would take perfection to be able to take a step back on this one. In fact, I'd like to introduce you to somebody that we're going to spend a little time with over the next three to four (laughs) weeks. Okay, so. Mr. and Mrs. Solomon. You'll notice something about them. I took their mouths off. And I covered them with black electrical tape because I want every single person in the room to understand that they want to, they're going to teach us something about how to actually do relationships. They're going to teach us how to do friendship. They're going to teach us how to do marriage. They're going to teach us how to talk to a coworker. I mean, they're just going to lay this out in front of us. So I want to remind you, what did she say? She said, I'm just a common little swamp flower. And now listen to his response. This is what he says. He says, like a lily among thorns is my darling among the young women. Here's what he says. You might feel common, but you're not common to me. You might feel ordinary and plain, but you're not ordinary and plain to me. In fact, I'll tell you what. Compared to everybody else in the room, you're like a rose amongst a whole bunch of thorns to me. You are my standard of beauty. I've said this before. Married people, listen up. If you're married, your spouse is your standard of beauty. That means this, if your spouse is short, you're into short. If your spouse is bald, you're into bald. If your spouse is tall, you're into tall. If your spouse is verbal, you're into words. Deal with it, okay? Now, some of you react and go, yeah, but when I married them, they didn't used to be that way, okay? Your standard changed, and it will continue to change as long as gravity is in effect. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Nod your head if you get it, okay? I mean, look at what he does here. In the face of feeling her pain, he speaks intimate words of beauty. We all need that. I don't care if you're a guy or a girl, whether you say you need it or you don't. We all need someone, especially God, to look at us and say, you're worthy of my love. I see this in my office all the time. Married couple comes in. One of them's hurt. The other one's wounded. Wounded. And instead of listening to what the other person's actually saying, they're just focused on themselves. And then at some point, one of them says, and I can't figure out why they don't want to be intimate. Like, really? For the record, and we'll get into this more deeply in the coming weeks, I can only talk from a man's perspective, but I have it on good authority that this is true, okay? For a man, sex leads to intimacy. Intimacy. For a woman, intimacy leads to sex. And in both cases, it all begins with words. Okay? Let's review something, and I think we forget, and this is for both genders, because believe me, I've seen ladies and men both turn their tongue into a knife and carve up their partner right in front of me until I've had to put a stop to it. We both need to hear this. So in your outline, it says this, the road to intimacy begins with words. It begins with words. And I'm going to share you four different kinds of words that Solomon and Namah actually model for us here because I think it's absolutely beautiful. And do you know why, why I know this is so important? It's because I know something for a fact. You have never heard someone say, you are so sexy when you're rude. You have never heard a human being say, you know what, I get so turned on when you talk down to me. You've never heard anyone say, I get all hot and bothered when you treat me like dirt. True? 11.15, you're so coy, it's like, I don't know what he's talking about. I'm just like, oh, yes, you do. Listen to what the Bible actually says here. Intimate conversation. Now, I'm not just talking about sexual intimacy. I'm talking about the intimacy that can actually be shared between two friends or someone that you care about or a family member or could be a spouse. This works for everybody in every category. Intimate conversation is always loving. It's loving. Listen to Solomon's dad, David. He's going to say these words. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Psalm 85 verse 10. He's saying words of love, not words of lust, but words of love and commitment and faithfulness. They bring righteousness and peace together in your relationship, in a passionate embrace. And we know the opposite, right? We know that anger and selfishness, that drives a wedge in your relationship and forces you apart. I don't care who you're in a friendship with. If you sow angry and hurtful words, it will drive the relationship apart. So what does the Bible implore us to do? keep the conversation loving always no exceptions keep it loving second word kind kind keep the conversation kind proverbs 31:26 she opens her mouth in wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue keep the conversation kind we know what happens When our conversation becomes demeaning and short, and it's just made up of these critical little statements, it just drives a wedge right in the center of the relationship. My mom used to say this all the time. You can finish it for me. If you don't have anything nice to say, my mom was a genius. We should all listen to our moms a whole lot more. If you don't have something nice to say, we're actually supposed to practice what Mr. and Mrs. Solomon are doing right now and zip it. I mean, the truth is, I'm trying to walk a really tough balance right now. I'm trying to say some hard things in a kind way. Some of you are just like, you are not doing a very good job. And it's like, that's okay, I'm sorry, we can hug after the service, okay? All right? It's supposed to be kind, always. Thirdly, keep the conversation gentle. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Here's what we need to know. Intimate conversation has a tone, and the tone is always gentle. And some of you are already living in the world of yeah, but right now. He's like, yeah, but he makes me so angry. Yeah, but she makes me so angry. What did the Bible say? It says a gentle answer turns away anger. When you use reckless words, you're just putting fuel on the fire, and that fire is going to get completely out of control, and it's not the fire of passion. It's the fire of conflict. When you respond with a harsh word, that anger just continues to grow. If you want the anger to subside, Scripture is telling you how to get it done. Try gentle. Loving, kind, and gentle. And if they don't respond, try gentle again. And if they don't respond, try gentle again. And here's the good news. The Bible says this, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Which means this, you're only responsible for your response, not theirs. And God's going to hold you accountable for your response, not theirs. So your job, according to Scripture, is to keep it loving, kind, and gentle 100% of the time. And Here we go, let's wrap it up. Finally. Keep the conversation understanding. Here's Solomon again. He's going to say these words in Proverbs 18, verse 2. I love this verse. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. That's good. That's good Bible right there. Let me say it again, my translation. An idiot doesn't even try to understand. Instead, they just share their own opinion over and over and over and over again. You've met people like that, haven't you? Solomon says this, when, when I choose to understand, even before I choose to be understood, I get in a posture that God can bless, and He will nurture and grow that relationship if I'm willing to put others first. So what am I supposed to do? I am supposed to understand before I attempt to be understood. Loving, kind, gentle, and understanding say again. Loving, kind, gentle, and understanding. And make sure you get this. It applies to every follower of Jesus, regardless of marital status, at all times, in every conversation, at the office, in the line, at Costco, and at the football game this afternoon when you're throwing something at your television set. Loving, kind, gentle, and understanding. That's what opens the door to a depth of intimacy, whether it's in a friendship or the friendship at the office or a friendship in the field, or a marriage. It's the same for all of us, loving, kind, gentle, and understanding. I came home some years ago. Laurel met me at the the back door of our garage. She was frustrated because I was a young youth pastor, no boundaries, didn't know how to say no to anything. I would just say yes, 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 yes. And I had been gone way too much, way too much. So I walk in the door, and in a very loving, kind, gentle, and understanding way, but with very much a point, she basically said this. She said, I feel like a single parent. I feel alone. I feel like you care more about everybody else than you do about us because we are not on the top of your priority list. She was loving. She was kind. She was gentle, understanding, and she was right. I have a natural response when I'm challenged. It's defensiveness. If you don't believe me, just ask her. I can get defensive just like this, and deep down inside of my soul, I'm just like, are you serious, really? I'm trying to work really, really hard to provide for this family, and there's a lot of demand, so I got to go and do this, this is important, and that, that was welling up inside of me, but it never made it out of my mouth gate. It never made it out of my mouth gate. In fact, I remember looking at her, and my response was, you miss me. got it right just once. I'm so excited. <laughs> you know, it could have been an angry moment, but instead, I got it right because Laurel came at it from the perspective of loving, kind, gentle, and understanding. And here was the other part. She was right. She was right. So I didn't defend. And in that moment, it actually brought us together in a tender moment of admitting that we had just been apart too long. And for the record, out of that conversation came some unbelievably good boundaries that protected our family for a lot of years. And I'm so thankful that God gave me the gift of somebody who was willing to be, in the face of of my lack of responsibility, loving, kind, gentle, and understanding. We should all try it. Now, I want you to know this. It's possible to have a very direct conversation while maintaining a godly heart. Because some of you think it doesn't work. Loving, kind, gentle, understanding. I tried that. So I flipped drill sergeant. And I want to make sure that's the only way to get my point across. Really? Well, I would submit this to you, Mr. Sergeant. Sir, Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Loving, kind, gentle, and understanding. You know what I love about those four words? It's impossible to shout them in anger. You're not being very loving, kind, gentle, and understanding right now. (laughs) And I know some of you are saying, but I'm angry. doesn't matter. But they hurt me first. Loving, kind, gentle, and understanding. In fact, let me just get up. Let me get right in the face of all of the married folks in the room. Loving, kind, gentle, and understanding, the way you used to talk to each other when you were dating. Oh boy, here we go. Last week, I quoted the book of Revelation to you that talks about how we're supposed to recapture our first love of Jesus, because this is all about Jesus. He will show up in this story over and over again, and the Bible says when you forsake your first love, you're supposed to repent, so admit it, own it. And then it says this, and now return to the things you did at first. Go back to the way, do you remember what you used, how you used to talk to Jesus when you first met him? When you first began that relationship? You woke up in the morning and the first person you wanted to talk to was him. You couldn't go to bed at night until you had a talk with him. You brought him along with you in every day because there was no compartments where he wasn't welcome. You were just completely laid bare because of everything that he'd done for you. And God says, if you want to recapture that, go back and do those things again. Start over again. So it works for people who love Jesus, but it also works for married people who've lost their passion. Do you remember how you used to talk to each other when you first met? Go back and do that again. Loving, kind, gentle, and understanding. Let's wrap this up. I read Song of Solomon and I can find Jesus all over the book. Something in Scripture called typology, where God gives us a little bit of a foreshadowing of of who Jesus is going to be through a broken human vessel. And that's a part of the issue with Solomon. He's a broken human vessel. He gets it right for a season, but then he keeps getting it wrong. But I can find Jesus all over the book. I find him in the disguised king because Scripture says, and the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us for a little while. I can find him in the judgment of culture, because my Bible says, but we esteemed him not. We didn't even recognize who he was. I can even find him loving in the midst of insecurity, because the Bible says, while we were still sinning, Christ died for us. When you ask the question, where's God in the story, you've got to be careful, because at some point all of the metaphors and stories will break down for one reason. Jesus is God and everybody else is a human being who falls short of the glory of God. But that's where we find how we relate. My friends, this is not a story of a good king. This is the story of a broken king. A king who forsakes his first love and walks away. So I want to make sure you hear this as we've just unwrapped the story from two different perspectives today. Please make sure you hear me loud and clear. The moral of the story is not that every girl needs a Prince Charming. That's so not true. The moral of the story is that everybody in the room needs a Prince of Peace. Let me say that again. The moral of the story is not that every girl needs a Prince Charming. The moral of the story is that everyone needs A prince of peace. So I'm always daring you to be authentic and transparent. I'll go first. Once upon a time on the flat prairie of Saskatchewan, an insecure and arrogant young man began to pursue a girl. His baggage included a penchant for lying, an overactive uh, overactive imagination, and a mouth that got him in trouble a lot. And he was not loving, and he was not kind, And he was not gentle, and he was not understanding. For a while, the relationship seemed to be on track, but in her wisdom, the girl knew that there was something wrong with his heart. It just wasn't right. And in an act of grace and truth and conviction, the young girl gave the arrogant young man a gift, the gift of a non-rescue. Instead of trying to fix something, she stepped back and handed him over to Jesus because she knew only Jesus could fix something that was that broken. And Jesus broke him. Over and over and over again. And the breaking continues to this very day. In fact, this very moment. In time... Jesus began to heal and restore and took back the rightful place in the center of the young man's life. And in response to that, with a lot of caution and a lot of wisdom, she stepped back into his life because he finally figured out that the only way to love somebody else is to love Jesus more And they both lived stretched, challenged, learning, restoring, changing, and 27 years later still hoping that in loving Jesus that gives them the greatest opportunity to love each other well. And that's not a fairy tale. That's real life. And it's also the naked truth about just one human relationship. It's connected to the guy who stands in front of you every week with a microphone strapped to his head. Not for his glory, but for the glory of the God who saved him. So. I told you that each week we were going to kind of lay this story bare and ask ourselves the question, what, what could God do if we were to courageously pray and ask God to take over a certain part of our, our life, our relationship, whether married or not married? So today I'm just going to ask you one simple question and then we're going to be done. To sing one more song, I'm going to give you a moment to pray. What if God hijacked your mouth And the only thing that ever came out of it was loving, kind, gentle, and understanding. Can I tell you what? That would radically change all of your friendships. That would radically change your office environment. That would radically change your conversation with God. That would radically change your marriage relationship if you are married. Loving, kind, gentle, and understanding. So here's what we're going to do. In a moment, we're going to bow our heads. We're going to close our eyes. We're going to pray just to concentrate. And we're going to simply pray, God, would you purify my mouth? Purify it from anger. Purify it from frustration. Purify it from the need to somehow express a belief that another human being can actually fill my soul. God, purify my mouth so that the only words that come out reflect the same words that you speak towards me that are always loving, kind, gentle, and understanding. It takes courage to pray that prayer because it means we're all going to have to learn a new way to talk. The Song of Solomon teaches us it's worth it. So let's pray together in a moment of quiet and silence. And let's ask God to pray or to do that hard, difficult work inside of each one of us. And then I'll close us in prayer. Father God, thank you for looking at all of us and believing that we're beautiful. Thank you that you chose to have us as your standard of beauty. God, would you teach us how to receive that? It's hard. God, as we stand here before you today in this room, I simply pray, God, would you teach us what it means to have our mouths purified so that we can welcome intimacy, not only with you, but with friendships, marriages, with every family relationship that we come across. God, may this group of people today walk out of here believing that the only words that you're going to bless this week are those that are loving, kind, gentle, and understanding. God, many of us have been wounded by words. Would you teach us how to forgive? Would you teach us, as far as it depends on us, to live at peace with everybody? God, do that work, I pray. And anything good that comes out of it, we will give you honor and praise as our glorious, loving, intimacy, intimately gifted God. So Lord, I thank you for this morning. Teach us to do relationships different, I pray. And use this difficult book do that work. I pray these things in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. All God's people say,